This is a fourth hand production. Story in the news today. You believe in ghosts and the paranormal? Are they are they UFOs or are they like some crazy experimental, you know, governmental I don't know, planes that they're building? Police in Española are catching more than just criminals. They're catching images of what they believe are ghosts. This weird animal-like creature that was shot, wolf-like creature that just stood out in some odd ways. Welcome to Strange Uncles. I'm Shane. I'm John. I'm Josh. How yes, is you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as Sometimes. you always are, sir. So, unless you want to masquerade. Um, well, I'll tell you what. I will just say today has been absolutely crazy. Uh, a lot of stuff going on. John, I know you had things on your side as well. Which yeah, you I probably- literally walked right in the door, <laughs> set up the mic. Turned on my computer and we're going. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully everything went good. Not to get personal, but you know, moving always sucks. And you know, but you know, I love my mom, but I'm glad you know. Oh, she listens to this, but uh, I hope you enjoy your new apartment. <laughs> I think she will. Absolutely, that's cool. Um, well, other than the heat, I'm doing fine on my side. Just still doing construction at the company, and you know, it is what it is. The building's almost built. Uh, but despite everything else, we actually have – so we have a special guest that we invite on the show. It's taken some finagling to try to get the, our schedules kind of matched up. And the cool thing is most of you know where I Salt Lake. Uh, she's also local, so she's not too far down the road from us, which I find kind of neat. Um, so we're going to introduce her here. Um, Dr. Lynn S. McNeil is a folklorist as well as a professor that teaches folklore and digital culture at Utah State University. Not only is she a professor, but she is also an author who wrote a book in 2013 called Folklore Rules, a fun, quick, and useful introduction to the field of academic folklore studies. She has spent several years writing about folklore, actually more than several, um, quite, a, quite a long time, which we'll get into, um, but also fine-tuned her studies to really be interested in writing about contemporary legends and supernatural beliefs. She has done numerous speeches and appearances on TV, radio, and podcasts such as ours, and we stumble on Lynn watching Paranormal Con on camera, which is what I kind of watch on my side, and I'm like, oh, it, and I saw the title, and I saw where she was from, I'm like, oh, this is perfect, I'm going to reach out. So, here we are. Uh, where she was brought on, she actually was brought on Paranormal to actually talk about Bigfoot and that whole background briefly, but you know, we're going to get into hopefully more than just that. Um, Dr. Lynn, it is awesome to have you on the podcast. Welcome to Strange Uncles. Thank you. I am very, very, very excited to be here. That's a very for each of you. <laughs> oh wow! I feel so feel so special. I got a, my own very own very. I know, right? <laughs> Yours was the second. That's just, fantastic. That's good. No, um, you know, well, first of all, I'll just kick off with number one. Thanks for your time. You know, we always, you know, this is strange times for everybody. Uh, we're all in the same boat. Um, I think for those of us who are interested in, in the high strangeness field and whatever realm that may be, uh, the one positive thing out of this whole COVID thing is it gives us time to kind of find time to get together and do this and do this in a different form. We'll be honest with you, uh, Dr. Lynn, we actually, this is the first time we've done zoom. We all were in the studio together and then COVID hit. And now we had to kind of relearn how to kind of introduce that. And it's been, um, you know, it's been a challenge for sure. I bet. I mean, teaching this fall is going to be, I teach online anyway, but I normally, 
our online classes at USU are asynchronous. And now it's like our regular classes are going to be online as well, but mm. synchronous, you know, we're all going to be zooming together. So it's a new, mm-hmm. it's a new weird world for all of us. Yeah. We just all have to learn how to adapt and roll with the punches and try and make the best of it. Really. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, with that being said, let's get into you a little bit since you took your time to kind of come on the podcast. Um, really just kind of a background for our listeners, how long you've been into what you're doing, uh, where it stemmed from. If you don't mind, that'd be a great start and we can move from there. Sure. So, you know, I I think that I, like so many people, have been interested in the stuff of folklore my whole life. You know, one of my earliest big influences was the movie Ghostbusters. I know that sounds so generic, (laughs) but that was an enormously influential movie over me. Um, And then I've always loved fairy tales and fairy lore and urban legends and all of that stuff. And it was just, I was one of those kids, you know, like holding seances and playing with Ouija boards and hypnotizing my friends. I mean, what so many of us did. Did that work, by the way? Did you have anybody hypnotized? I'm curious. You know what? In my memory, yes. Like, I remember (laughs) so clearly, in that that way that, that, like, preteen memory works. Yeah. I was at Deanna Josephson's house, and we hypnotized our friend, and then we got super freaked out, and we couldn't unhypnotize her, and we had to call (laughs) Deanna's mom in and be like, help us. (laughs) <laughs> and so, but I mean, it was one of those like, holy crap, this stuff is real. Yeah, yeah. Moments that yeah. just affected me. And then I think w- where it became, where it sort of transitioned from, hey, this is, I'm a person who's a hobbyist and I'm interested in this, was in college, I just got lucky. I went to UC Berkeley. I didn't know what I wanted to study, I had like 18 majors. And then I took this folklore class, and I didn't even know that was a thing hmm. you could do and from day one in this class i just spent the whole time being like wait what like for real like this this is a thing this is like a job title this is a (laughs) thing i can do and everything i was interested in ended up falling under this umbrella of folklore because folklore is really big you know like we people like people have their own different associations with it some people are like urban legends and rumors and other people are like quilting and basket weaving and other people are like grandparent stories. And it's like, yeah, all of that and more like it's also (laughs) internet memes and jump rope rhymes and barbecues and all of these things that we all do that are on these like informal levels of culture. And literally from my first week in that class on, I was just like, Oh, sold. I know (laughs) what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to major in. I'm going to go to grad school. I'm going to become a folklorist in whatever way the world will let me be a folklorist. I'm going to do it. And then I just got lucky that I got to be a folklorist in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a may I'll be honest with you. I mean, I'm going to, I'll be the one to play the dumb card in the group here. I didn't know a folklorist existed either. I mean, I know what a folklore is, but not to put a title on it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And that it's such a, it's such a common word that we all feel like, oh, we should all know what this means. And it's like, no, why? Why would we know that? And, and yeah. we don't know that, like, we know what an anthropologist is. We know what a literary scholar is. We know what a sociologist is. And folklorists are like all of those things combined. Only we look at what I think of as like hmm. the good stuff. Like, you know, anthropologists look at like, you know, kinship structure and government of tribal communities and things like that. And literary scholars look at like the great books and, 
and all of this like highbrow stuff. And folklorists are basically like stories are important. Music is important. Customs are important. Ritual is important. But we care about the stuff that everyday people are doing and sharing with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what really defines folklore is it's this everyday lived culture that's variable, that's dynamic. There's no, you know, you read a novel, like there's one version of it. It's the published one. You buy it and you get it and you read it and you like it and you give it to a friend. They read the exact same book you did. An urban legend or a fairy tale, you mm. have your version of it. Someone who lives two states away or even just two towns away has their version of it. And they're both correct. They're both equally right. Yeah. And that's what is so cool about folklore in my mind is that we have this variability and this dynamism, all of which is still valid. Wow. Yeah, it's it's like that's where the good stuff and the rich stuff of a culture lives is in its folklore and its legends. And, yeah. you know, like the 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 kinship structures and, and everything else that's interesting for sure. But the good stuff is in the folklore and, and the legends and what they believed, you know? Yeah. And there's this sense that like, Oh, that's trivial. Like once it's accessible to everyone, it's unimportant. And it's like, no, it's actually the opposite. Once it's accessible to everyone, if it's something that everyone in a particular cultural group knows, then it's extra important. Like if only three well-educated, well-connected people in a community know the information, it might be interesting, but Mm. it's not enormously group defining. But when it's something everyone knows, then we start to say, okay, maybe that's telling us something about this. Yeah. And it seems like you can find out a lot about a culture through their folklore and that really shapes an entire culture, which is never really thought about it, but yeah. Yeah. The example that I always go to, um, like at Utah State University, like if you're a student at USU, you have an A number, right? Your student number, you have it. Yay. That means you're a member of the (laughs) campus community. But like when it comes to really embodying that identity, are you a true Aggie? You know, a true Aggie means you've stood on top of this little like sculpture that we have in the quad that's shaped like an A and you've kissed someone. Yay. And this university loves that and promotes it and sells you chapstick that says true Aggie and you put it on. But do you really want to be an Aggie? You become an ultimate Aggie. Uh In order to become an ultimate Aggie, we have this giant bronze bowl sculpture by the stadium. You have to ride that thing naked and ideally have your (laughs) friends take pictures of you doing it. And it's like, sure. Can you be a student at USU and not be an ultimate Aggie? Yeah. But like, are you having a better USU experience if you become an ultimate Aggie? Also, yeah. I would love to know that count. That that is, I never even heard such a thing. That's crazy. <laughs> it it is. I I'm just gonna tell you now. I've had students do it and like send me the pictures, and I'm like, I, I didn't need that. <laughs> like, I, I believe you. Appropriate. Uh, <laughs> no. yeah. I believed I, you. I believed you when you did it. You just had to tell yeah. me you did it. I didn't need a picture. <laughs> so can professors be ultimate Aggies? Anyone can be an Aggie. Anyone can be an Aggie. I am not. I am a true Aggie, but I am not an ultimate Aggie. You're an ultimate. I hope someday to secretly cross that threshold, and I'll tell people (laughs) about it after the fact, but not in the moment. Yeah. Yeah, You don't have to send a picture either. You just can say it. I think people probably believe you. I'm pretty sure. So that's amazing. That's, oh, that's funny. That's hilarious. So I've got a quick question in regards to folklore and your profession. So it's a profession. You live by it. You're, it pays your bills. You lecture on it. 
how does it look to other professionals and other, you talk about anthropologists and these other ones, and we've had um, other people, and the reason I ask because we have other people on the show, like Michael P. Masters, I don't know if that name rings a bell, he actually wrote a book, he's a anthropology professor out of Butte, Montana, um, wrote a book about, um, basically, he believes that aliens are us from the future, they're traveling nice. back. And oh, that's you know, so cool. it's a cool concept, but yeah. you know, the same question applied to him. How does it, when you look at your other peers, how, how do you stand on that? Does it bother you? Is it the same? What's that look like? You know, it's tough. Folklore as a academic discipline has been sort of excessively trivialized in the academy. And that's frustrating. It has frustrated folklorists for a long time, but what it's done, I think, unfortunately, is it's led a lot of academic folklorists, and we're going back to like the 1940s or the 1950s here, to like sort of oversell the theoretical viability of the discipline. So there's all these like old school folklore papers written that like nobody would ever want to read that are all just like way too over the top, academic, obtuse, theoretical, impenetrable. And you can see that as like this overcorrection for exactly what you're talking about, where people are like, there's the scholars of the great books here. There's the scholars of, you know, world cultures. And here I am talking about like local regional foodways, you know, like folklore scholars in Utah literally write about like fry sauce and green jello. <laughs> and everyone's sort of like, oh, do we really need to be paying college professors <laughs> to do that? And it's like, yeah, we do. Because like way more people eat fry sauce than, you know, read Ambrose Bierce, honestly. Yeah, I, I but, care I care way more about fry sauce. Not so much green jello, but fry sauce than I do like Monet, let's yeah, say. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's, uh, right? I mean as far yeah. as like identifying my daily life, it's fry sauce here, Monet here. And that Monet's great, but fry sauce. Sure. Is like, <laughs> yeah, I mean I don't have a problem with Monet. Um, but yeah. I like fry sauce a lot more. <laughs> exactly. And so it's sort of that. It's not saying that elite, you know, like extra special culture isn't important. It's just saying that we all live in this world of like, like on the ground culture and memes and, and ideas and everything. And that's what influences so much of our existence. We should pay attention to it. So I did a TEDx talk at USU that was sort of about this, saying like, "Hey, embrace your low culture. Like, don't think of it as low. <laughs> Just think of it as like commonplace or it's or another piece. Or yeah, it's, yeah, it's another know? piece. It, it it's something to be important. And we've all seen that, by the way. That one of the things that we kind of share back and forth, and so it was really good. I mean, it it, I, I it think- made me feel a lot better about myself. Um, I was just like, okay, I'm not a total piece of shit loser. No, no, you are not. I'm doing this for my culture. Damn it. Exactly. Exactly. You're doing serious cultural work. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. As you're smiling, you're all It's just the boost I needed. It really was just the boost. It's been a bad day, but it makes it better now that I know I'm not a complete pile. (laughs) Too funny. That's cool. No, I think it's very legitimate, and I think you know when you look at that too. Every little tiny piece is something because it does add to that pie, and and I think people just kind of forgo it, you know. And I thought about that the other day. You know, we're looking again. You know, COVID thing. You know, what happens in when we look back? Heaven forbid. You know, this is done twenty years, fifty years. Are we taking pictures? Are we? You know, yeah, it's an everyday thing for us. But how is it being documented? Where's yeah. it going to fit into? Our ideal, not only as us, but just as a world. You know, we went through this little phase of weird shit here. How is that going to be represented in the future? You know? 
You know, and we have all of our sort of official sources that will have opinions on that. But we also have all of our like our jokes and our memes and our rumors and our conspiracy theories. Like I remember early on, I was still teaching when COVID first hit. My students started sending me all of these like half joke, half conspiracy theories they were finding that were like, you know, big toilet paper. Like that's who's creating this scandal (laughs) and panic for us so that we'll all buy more toilet paper. It's like a... Damn you know, Charmin. The yeah. Toilet paper industry. Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> well, and they're, um, and they're still going around. I want to kind of get into legends and lore and maybe yeah. a little bit of Bigfoot and kind of. Yes. Yeah. Um, I guess you're just your take on that. On that. I think yeah, that's on, a, on, that is on, a good question. I like that question because, so as a folklorist, one of the things that It's interesting. A lot of people ask the question when it comes to, we'll say Bigfoot specifically, but sort of legends and legendary creatures and cryptids in general. A lot of people ask the question, is it true? And the much, much, much more interesting question from a folklorist perspective is why are so many people invested in the possibility that it might be true? Yes. You know, like folklorists are really good at setting aside the is it real, is it not real question and saying, okay, but why would everyone keep talking about this? Because anthropologically, sociologically, no one, no community keeps talking about something for no reason. You know, nobody does. If something is truly unimportant, it disappears. It's gone. We don't talk about it anymore. So if we're talking about it, it means something. So we are constantly talking about Bigfoot and, and other legends. So what does that mean? And, and as a folklorist, we have a few answers. And one is it's articulating or dramatizing or illustrating something symbolic for us. Hmm. There's this super famous legend scholar named Linda Digg. She was from literally Transylvania. Oh, uh, wow. That's cool. I know, right there. And she lived <laughs> to be like five or something. So everyone uh. was like, grandpa. Um, <laughs> but she awesomely made this great point where she's like, legends can be true or legends can be false, but they're always right. They're right about something. They're uh-huh. tapping into something that is correct about the culture or the people from which they stem. The, there's and a so vein there. There's some, there's some kind of a vein there that they, yeah, that, you like know, it's not going to go away. Truth. You know, whether it's factually true or not, it's speaking to something true. So we could say maybe that some legends persist because they speak to something symbolic about us. There's a great book about Bigfoot um, by Robert Pyle. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. He is a lepidopterist, a butterfly scholar. Oh. Uh, and he writes this book called Where Bigfoot Walks, where he goes and lives with a bunch of Bigfoot hunters for like a really long period of time. Hmm. And he comes to the sort of symbolic conclusion where he's like, these guys don't want to find Bigfoot. Like they want to be Bigfoot. Like Bigfoot (laughs) represents this sort of natural idealistic way of being to them. That's like at one with nature that is, you know, sort of contrasted against excessive modernity. This is a creature who, who can survive in the wild, who doesn't need modern society, who's self-reliant, you know, all of this stuff. And he's like, these are all positive characteristics. Hmm. That and, and searching for Bigfoot lets you live like Bigfoot. Like, of course, people want to do this. So that's sort yeah. of an example of like that, you know, the symbolic 
explanation well, of why yeah, would we keep telling this? Yeah, and, and I think maybe on that same facet, and we're going to take a quick break here if you don't mind, Lynn, but I, yeah. just a follow-up yeah. on that quick facet is what happens if you – this is a whole thing with folklore or myth or whatever have you, I feel. So you're fascinated by this. You want to find the answer for this. What happens when you find that answer? Then where does it go? Then what does it become? Now it's not so mystical, you oh, know? I know. So, and that's hard. Yeah. I, that's, that's a whole other thing is that I actually think that on that symbolic level, and there's other levels. I don't want to stop at the symbolic level <laughs> because there's more that we need to talk about that's exciting and important. But on that symbolic level, one of the things that appears to be really psychologically beneficial for humans is this world where there is still mystery, where there is still possibility. Absolutely. And the minute we know the answer, cut and dry on something, we're sort of like, "Mm." what do we do now? Yeah. 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 Like, what's next? You know, where do I go now? Mm. And that's tricky. I mean, it's, you know, there's a show called Finding Bigfoot for a reason. It's not called We Found the Bigfoot because then it would be over. <laughs> like, yeah. like the, the goal is the search and the goal is the wonder and the question and the exploration and the mystery. And I believe that very much that we want to live in a world with questions. Absolutely. And for as much as we claim we're seeking answers, what we really love is is pursuing the questions. And the answers are good, but God, there better be more questions <laughs> or we would be really disappointed. Yeah, absolutely. I can agree with you more. Like the journey's way funner than the destination, pretty much. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, the so. destination is valuable because it gives us a journey to take. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, we're going to take a quick commercial break. Dr. Lynn, we'll be right back. Stand by. Sounds good. Believe in UFOs? Felt that chill up your spine that you just can't explain? Contemplate the other side of reality? Do you shake your head at the world that seems to have lost its common sense? Well, look no further than Strange Uncles. Find them on all podcast platforms and call their hotline to tell your side of reality at 801-252-6945. Open the gates. All right, so we're on with Dr. Lynn McNeil again. Um, you were about to go down the rabbit hole on uh, symbol, symbiotic thing, right? To how that looks and how that pertains. Mm-hmm. Let's keep talking about that because this whole this is just amazing. It, it's a fun conversation for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. So basically, when it comes to answering that question of why do why does legend persist? Why are we all talking about Bigfoot? And, you know, getting at that idea that questions are more fun than answers is obviously a big part of it. But like, what, what's the metaphor here? What are we understanding here? And we're understanding something about wilderness. We're understanding something about the level to which there remains mystery in our world. I mean, we've got Google Maps. We've got Google Earth. Like, we know what the planet looks like. We can see right. all parts of it. The idea that there are things that we don't understand, things that don't obey the laws of science as we understand them is incredibly emotionally and psychologically significant to us as, as people. I really feel so as a, as an academic, I would say, I tell my students, the definition of supernatural is outside that, which is understood about nature. Exactly. As you can imagine is a sliding scale because what we understand about nature is constantly changing. There was a time 
in human history when lightning was outside what we understood about human nature, making mm-hmm. lightning supernatural. So we had explanations for it that that went outside the realm of what we now understand as the natural world and ionization and electricity and all of this stuff. It is entirely possible that things like Bigfoot or um, apparitions or ghosts or UFOs or whatever will absolutely fall within what we understand about nature later <laughs> in the future of, right. of you know human existence. So we call it supernatural because of where we are now, not mm-hmm. because of what it is always. And that, I think has a lot to do with the meaning that these things hold for us. The idea that there are things we can't explain and don't understand actually makes the world better for people. Can I ask you a question on that real quick? So we talk about terminology, okay, or words in the English language in in our thing. Take the word occult, for example. You know, people are gun-shy of that word because to them it's this weird witches around a tree, you know, ringing something up. When in reality it only means just it's something not known. You know, that's the day. So when you talk about that word supernatural, what's your idea? Why is there such a stigma on that word? I've never figured that out. I know it's really tough. And I think actually in a lot of ways, and of course I'm a little bit biased when I say this, it's the same stigma that the world word folklore has. Like folklore means to people, not true. Oh, that's, we use it dismissively. Oh, that's just folklore. And we use that to mean, (laughs) you don't have to care about it. You don't have to take it seriously. And it's like, whoa, you know, and, and the word, there's actually a concept that folklorists use to talk about this. And it's called the triviality barrier. And that basically means that folklore is perceived to be so trivial that uh, people think, why would you waste your time with this crap? Uh, and if you actually look at the root of the word trivial, like in Latin, trivia, tri, via, three roads, the word trivia means the point at which three roads intersect. And if hmm. we think we have community A, community B, community C, they've all got their own roads, they've all got their own downtowns, but they all meet at the trivium this point where they come together that's where you're going to build a market that's where you're going to put an agora that's where you're going to put a place where people come together and hang out and talk and debate and exchange in commercial business and whatever and that place becomes super important because it's common because it's shared by everyone so even embedded in the concept of trivial which we so easily take to mean unimportant it actually means super crazy important because it's relevant <laughs> to everyone. And I think of the word supernatural the same way. It's We use it to mean, mm, guys, we don't have scientific lingo for this. Cool. I want to hear our non-scientific lingo for right, this. And, right, right, right. You know, like this actually gets us a little bit into, and I don't want to move on too fast from the idea of legend and belief as symbol, but when we ask ourselves, why do people continue to believe this thing? One of the answers is because it's happening, right? Because it's real, because it exists. Like, you know, why do we all believe in trees? Well, because there they are, you know? And, And anytime we see what folklorists would call a cross culturally stable pattern of belief, we have to allow for the possibility that the source of that belief is experience, real Mm -hmm. lived experience rather Mm -hmm. than culture. 
And yeah. folklorists call this the experiential source hypothesis as opposed to the cultural source hypothesis. So let's go down that road real quick. And and again, you know, we're kind of focusing on the Bigfoot thing, but yeah. obviously it's not their Bigfoot is our name, but that's not the only name. And you talk about cross cultural, yeah. uh, the Yeti, you know, the yes. Appalachian snow monster, these other things that you hear that it's all funny. it's similar. It's there. How does one culture in a continent, thousands of years ago, whatever have you, but there's another culture over here. Where does that lie in the whole folklore thing? Because that's that's something to be discussed, I feel, right? Absolutely, yeah. And folklorists have an entire methodology built around this. We call it the historic geographic method, meaning mm-hmm. we trace a thing, a belief through history and geography, through time and space. And we sort of say, here's this story, this belief, this custom, this whatever, here's the earliest version I can find of it. Here's where it is. Here's when it is. And let me follow it through like its branches and everything now. Mm. And, you know, back in the olden days of folklore studies, people were really big on like, but what's the oldest? Like, what's the first version I can find of this? And what does that tell me about that? Folklorists now are like, hmm, like maybe we'll find it. Maybe we won't. Who cares? The origin rarely has anything to do with why people believe it now. Mm-hmm. But what it does do is it lets us sort of map the breadth and the depth of a tradition. So we can say Bigfoot, for example, in all the different regions, in all the different time periods, in all the different cultures that have identified some large bipedal hominid creature, what's consistent? What's the same across all those examples and what's different? across all those examples. And folklorists call those the twin laws of folklore, dynamism and conservatism. What's different, what changes, and what's the same. And we can see that speaking to, again, are we talking symbolically or are we talking biologically? That's an interesting phenomenon. You know, a lot of folklore metaphors come from botany and biology so that folklorists have the concept of an ecotype or an oikotype. Like you can have a plant like sage, Sage will look one way in the high west desert and a different way in the southeastern jungle, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is cool. Same plant, different ecotype, right? We have the same thing with legends. Bigfoot looks different in the Pacific Northwest than Bigfoot looks in Florida because they're different environments. Like, of course we do, right? Right. And, And that idea that we see this dynamism, we can say, okay, here's the unique characteristics here. Here's the unique characteristics here, but here's the core conservative element that everyone who talks about this creature talks about X, whatever it is, you know, or whatever that handful of attributes is. Then we start to say, maybe there's really something going on. Like maybe Hmm. there's an actual thing taking place. Yeah. And, you know, when folklorists came up with this, it was revolutionary. For a long time, the field of anthropology and the field of folklore, admittedly, um, were a little bit like judgmental, where it'd be like they'd come across these folk beliefs and be like, can you believe what the peasants are believing these days? (laughs) And it's sort of like, come on, now we know now everyone's the folk. We're all the there's no separate special group that is the folk. We are all the folk as we exist on our informal cultural levels. And. So this idea that the experiential source hypothesis that basically says sometimes when people describe something supernatural, they are accurately describing the world around them. They just happen to be using traditional vocabulary 
instead of scientific vocabulary. Because that's all they know, right. Say that again? Because that's all they know, right. I mean, this is what they're trying to, yeah. That's the vocabulary they have, right? Like, you can't, in most places, take a class on cryptozoology in college. Mm. You can take a class on zoology or biology. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if that Mm. discipline doesn't give you the language to talk about the 12-foot-tall hairy creature you saw in Providence Canyon you're going to have to turn somewhere else for your language, for your vocabulary. So you turn to folklore. Absolutely. And that's how we talk about this. Absolutely. John, Josh, I just real quick, I want you guys to know I'm I'm going to quit my work and I'm going to go to school for folklore. You have sold me on the whole belief <laughs> system of folklore. I okay. never in my imagination thought it was so entwined and and inner depth. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. As a whole discipline, it's like a discipline that basically says, I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to understand your beliefs within the context of your system, not mine. Like say, you know, this is actually what's happening. And that's strangely, it's one of the things I really like about paranormal caught on camera because they let the people who took the videos speak for themselves. And I'm Mm -hmm. always like, yeah, like, I don't know your grandpa. Like, you know that that's his ghost because you know what he was like. I didn't know him. (laughs) Like, you're obviously right. Why would I be right instead of you? Like, Uh, You know the guy. Yeah. Yeah, that well, while you're on that subject, so number one, that's all. That's absolutely amazing. I never even again. That's a whole nother realm. I, I think that you know, it, yeah, it's amazing. Um, let's talk about number one, paranormal con on camera, but local miss with Bigfoot because you obviously were brought on that show for a reason. I kind of was. So Josh had a question, and Josh, I guess I'll let you answer it. I'm sorry, I'm kind of bantering off. I feel like a a little schoolgirl here talking to you because it's, it's amazing. It's fine. You, so. you you take off, Shane. You're, you're fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just wondering what your experience with Paranormal Caught on Camera was like, like just being on it, you know? Yeah, no, it's been really fun. So I've done, I mean, as a folklorist, I think I'm really lucky. I've done a few TV shows. I was on, the weirdest one was the Food Network Challenge where they did urban legend-themed cakes and I had to come on and judge, like, <laughs> cake funny. design. It's <laughs> Out of my wheelhouse, big time. <laughs> yeah, but- I saw that on your IMDb, and I was just like, "Why the hell is she on a cooking show?" Like, cool, but <laughs> so weird. How does yeah, that? Yeah. Legend themes cake. There was like a whole spider in the hairdo cake. That's the one that won. That's what I remember. Oh, nice. Oh, that's um, funny. And I've done like Finding Bigfoot and In Search of Monsters and some other stuff. Um, but really, like Paranormal Caught on Camera was interesting because my first thought was like, "This isn't what I." do you know professionally like a student watching the show is going to be disappointed when in class they are not hearing about the nuances of poltergeists the way that we talk about (laughs) all the time on the show but what I started to discover was like they're not looking just to hear from experts they want the people who submitted the video to Mm -hmm. talk about here's what I've seen and here's what I've experienced. And I've lived in this house for 50 years and I've seen these lights every eight years or something. You know what I mean? Like that, that, and that's a big thing that folklorists care about is that it's not just the belief or the custom. It's the context of that belief that gives it meaning. So the example I always use for this is that I could tell you a joke that I don't find I would still call it a joke. I'd be like, hey, guys, check out this awful joke I just heard. And maybe it's racist or maybe it's sexist or something really offensive. And I would tell it to you. And I would say the words of it. 
but you would know that I don't find it funny. But if you were an archivist and you wrote down that joke on a piece of paper, the words of the joke, as I told it to you, and you labeled it joke and you put it in an archive, someone like 80 years from now would go to that archive and dig up that joke and be like, huh, I guess people in 2020 thought this kind of stuff was funny <laughs> you know? and they'd be wrong. Right. So when we as folklorists collect folklore, we can't just write down the words people say we have to write down everything. Like if I tell this joke and my arms are crossed and I'm furrowing my brow and I'm really pissed off and I'm disgusted, you need to write down. She was really disgusted. That, when that, she that's part of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah wow. exactly. And it's the same thing with belief, right? Like I can collect a Bigfoot story. From someone who's just like, yeah, I've got this friend and he's drunk all the time and he's an idiot and he thinks he saw Bigfoot. <laughs> and that is a different story <laughs> than yeah. someone who's like, no, my brother, like, I know this guy. He is smart. He's a scientist. He's an intellectual. He doesn't believe in Bigfoot, but he saw him. Like, right. wildly different mm-hmm. versions of the Bigfoot story. And that that attention to context is something that folklorists care about. And weirdly, it's something that paranormal caught on camera cares about too, <laughs> which I love. Like, I just yeah. think that's so cool. That's great for all of us. Um, what is some of your favorite, what is like one of your favorite folklore stories or one of your like, favorite folklores? Like regionally. So I'm just going to go. Regionally. Whatever. Any, anything, <laughs> anything. Yeah, yeah exactly. Sounds good. Um, we have here in Logan, Utah, um, up, Logan Canyon. There's a site. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called St. Anne's retreat. Have you heard of this? Uh, I haven't heard of that. I mean, I'm familiar with, you know, going in through Logan's Canyon and everything, but. So then you have to check this out sometime. It's this place. It's called St. Anne's retreat. The local legend is that it's an old nunnery where nuns, this is like way back in like the late 1800s, early 1900s, nuns would get sent when they had, um, transgressed in mm. such a way that they might need nine months off from being a nun. Just that nine means. months only. Yeah. Oh, convenient. <laughs> nine months transgression. For a Man, nun. I want to transgress. Right? I mean, <laughs> so we have this place where nuns would go when they were in the family way and they needed to have it taken care of. So the story is that there's this one young nun there um, who and what the, the, what the nuns believed was that they would go there and then their babies would be put up for adoption and then they would come back and, you know, be nuns again. Um, and this one young nun, when she's there, decides she doesn't want to do this. She wants to not be a nun anymore. She wants to keep her baby. And she makes this horrible discovery that what's really happening there is that the babies are all being drowned in the swimming pool and buried on the property. Oh and there gosh, is a... I've heard about this. There. Yeah. And she decides to run and is captured by the evil mother superior. And she herself is murdered and her baby is drowned in the swimming pool. Hmm. So there's this site and it's there. It's full of old buildings. It has an abandoned swimming pool. It's very terrifying. There's wonderful old historic photographs of this place filled with nuns in like full habits and everything. It's incredible. So Hmm. it's a very believable story. And of course the most, if you go legend tripping Hmm. there, legend tripping is when you go somewhere where a story is told to check it out for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, People go there all the time to see if it's haunted and they hear babies laughter and voices. People test their bravery oh, in the swimming wow. pool, all this different stuff. Um, one of the most common ghosts people see there is a local witch named witch Hecata, which many people believe is the ghost of the young nun herself. Um, so there's sort of her as the standalone terrifying 
creature. And then there's the ghosts of all the babies who just sort of want you to stay in the swimming pool and live with them forever. I've gone there. It's terrifying. Wow. Um, you definitely feel a sense of abandonment. I don't know how else hmm. to put it. Like, yeah. it, it's just. So, it's so there's, the there's a foreboding there that really yeah. is obvious. Oh. Yes. Uh, I mean, really palpable. In hmm. that sense of like, I don't need anyone to tell me a story about this place for me to feel super creeped out in this place. And it's just, I mean, I think like Ghost Adventures went there at one point and like filmed an episode there and stuff. It's an awesomely haunted place. It's under private ownership. You are taking a risk if you go there. Hmm. Um, What's it called again? I'm uh, sorry. St. Anne's Retreat. St. Anne's, Anne's Retreat. Yeah. So and it's, it's just up Logan Canyon? Yeah. And it actually, hmm. it's you're driving up Logan Canyon, maybe... 15 miles up, you look to your right, you'll see some abandoned buildings, shuttered mm. old windows and stuff. And then there's a bridge that you can drive across and a lot of signage saying, don't, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. But, uh, yeah. I'm looking at pictures of it right now. It looks real creepy. Oh my gosh. It's so scary. It's so genuinely creepy. Now the truth is it was a retreat for the Catholic church. Mm. Um, there is no record of babies being murdered or nuns being murdered or anything like that. It was a, actually Marilyn Monroe stayed there once. It was called Hatch Camp before that. It was a retreat for movie stars before it was a retreat for nuns. Hmm. Um, Hmm. But I mean, if we, again, if we go back to that symbolic level of folklore, we're here in Utah, the LDS church is the predominant religion. Here we have an incredibly popular legend about Catholics being bad, right? Wait, 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 wait. Catholics uh, being bad. That doesn't exist. No, no, it doesn't. Right? But you think about it in the context of a dominant religion that that raises the importance of family to a sacred level, and yeah. you have another religion, an outside, a minority religion that actually promotes celibacy among its clergy people. And you kind of go, here's a legend that one shows celibacy doesn't work, and two shows, <laughs> in a way, sort of a punishment for believing it might. Right. So we see this really symbolic articulation of major religious values being played out in this legend. Also you go there and it's freaking creepy, right? (laughs) So we have sort of like the cool cultural symbolic level and also just the hands-on like, yeah, you go stand in that pool and you're going to feel like weird shit happening. (laughs) I've done both. It's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. We got to get, there's something so uh, terrifying about it, like an empty abandoned pool. Yes. Yeah, so I, I a giant Olympic pool in uh, Wisconsin somewhere at a at this mm-hmm. venue, and it's it's awful. It's really cool, but it's like ugh, I don't. Know. Oh, I remember you telling that story. That's well, we stayed at the Queen Mary last year, the wife and I in Long oh, Beach, and oh, oh boy! Yeah. But they have like the pool where the little girls around that you know they talk about all these legends and these things, and it just you know it. Re- I realized that listening to you talk, we're gonna take another quick break, and then we're gonna come back here a little bit. But you, you know, you just told a ghost story, but to us, it's a ghost story. To you, it's folklore. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they go hand in hand. It's very interesting. It is. And it's really true. The word folklore has sort of like an academic meaning that I would put on it. But one of the coolest things about folklorists is that we're not here to tell people that their terminology is wrong. So like the stuff that I might call folklore or urban legend, which have like very specific definitions for me, other people might just call like what happened to me on Tuesday or a ghost story or whatever. And it's like, all the terminology is welcome. (laughs) Like we let people call things and we have like even weirder and more specific terminology, like memorat 
a memorat is a first person supernatural narrative. Other mm. people are literally just like, yeah, no, I was just telling you about last week. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. Works. Well, our terminology for a commercial break is a commercial break. We're going to take that right now and we will return. Stand by. Welcome, Beyonders. How did we get to this weird place? Who are these two crazy guys and what is going on? Beyond Terrestrial, or BT for short, is a podcast dedicated to the strange, the macabre, the conspiratorial, and all things supernatural. Hosted by Dan Martson and Lee Ariott, two guys who discovered late night radio shows like Coast to Coast while working the night shift and stumbled into a world of fantastic tales and local legends. We share these stories with our dedicated fans we lovingly call Beyonders every other Tuesday. Join me and Lee as we take a mysterious journey into obscure local tales and spin up some hot takes on the supernatural stories we all know and love. Two words. Interdimensional Bigfoot. Oh yeah. All right, and we are back. Um, John asked a question about regional. I would like to expand that a little bit and say more global on your folklore. What really, is there a region or a certain country or a certain culture that just blows other ones out of the water when it comes to their folklore or their stories? This is a fascinating question. And I promise my answer is not a dodge, but it's a little <laughs> bit of a dodge. Which is only to say that most folklorists, contrary to all popular opinion, um, specialize by genre rather than by culture. And this is really true. So mm. that instead of the world being full of folklorists who are like, I'm an expert in Irish folklore, or I'm an expert in Peruvian folklore, People say, I'm an expert in narrative folklore, or I'm an expert in customary folklore, or belief-based folklore, or something like that. So there are absolutely folklorists in the world who have like a culture that they work with, and they look at all the different genres and manifestations of folklore within that culture. I am not one of those folklorists. <laughs> I'm a folklorist who studies belief, and that belief may move everywhere from Slenderman, which is a, an American-originating largely digital um, mm -hmm. belief-based tradition to the rag wells of Ireland. So the fairy wells that have been, you know, adopted by Christian belief systems. And actually we talked about terminology and words like occult, which gets slammed. Pagan is another word that gets slammed. If you, if you Absolutely. look at, I, I, you know, I sort of blame, what was that movie from the eighties? Dragnet? Is that the one that gave us that pagan stands for people against goodness and normalcy? I think that was true. Okay. I mean, if you look at that word, Pagani in Latin means country dwellers, people from outside the city. And it's basically like when Rome as an empire converted to Christianity. And we can see this at work today in our culture. Like just because downtown Rome was like, Hey everyone, we're Christian now get with the program. Like everyone who lived outside the city, like you can see how long it probably took for that news to come one. And then for the actual cultural change to hit. So really pagan meaning country dweller just meant like people slow to get the news about Christianity. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so it was just people who persisted in the pantheistic pre-Christian beliefs they'd had before that point. 
has nothing to do with evil, badness, darkness, anything. Agreed. Yeah. And it's so interesting. It's like I tell my students that now and they're like, oh no, pagan is bad. And it's like, yeah, it's just people <clears throat> who have like sheep. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, yeah. like they didn't live in town. That was literally the the meaning of the word. Yeah. And you know, um, and honestly, just to expand a little bit, I yeah. would say that, you know, if you have to blame two parties of being bad back in the day, it wouldn't have been the pagans. No, so, right? Yeah. You know, the Crusades might give us a decent villain for a you know, (laughs) what perspective you're looking from, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, So yeah, it's uh like this i the idea of sort of a I'm sorry I I really did dodge that question. The idea of (laughs) is there a particular culture whose you know belief gives us something? Um, as a diplomatic folklorist, I'm going to say. Any culture, and and this is the other thing, dude. This is actually really key. Folklorists, um, oftentimes, the smaller the group, the better. So yeah, na- there is national folklore. There is Irish folklore. There is American folklore. There is Turkish folklore. There is Finnish folklore. But if you think about this, let's take American folklore as an example. Like when it comes to how much any given American legend might tell me about you as an individual, probably not a ton. Right. But by the time we get down to like the legends that your high school told mm-hmm. or that your neighborhood told or I that your yeah. family told, then we're getting into things that absolutely shaped your existence. So folklorists often look really small. So like we might, there are many folklorists who studied Ireland, for example. Um, but there's many more folklorists who've studied a particular town in Ireland. Mm. And then there's even more folklorists who've studied a particular storyteller in a particular town. And after a while you start to go like, my God, that's so specific. Like how can you generalize about that? But if you think about how we often study the works of one individual author, right. You know, only by the time we're looking at folk culture, we're talking about something that's been shaped by a community more than Mm -hmm. shaped by an individual. So we're already tapping into that group, meaning that, that group dynamic that's fascinating i i never even thought to think like that i mean really you know yeah. you you're really shrinking this down to a microcosm and then oh, building yeah. it back up really yeah oh, that's and crazy it's like there are folklorists who talk about folk dyads like two people and if you think about like if you've ever met you know a new couple people who just started dating and the little you know language that they develop and the the immediate presence of customs and traditions and oh you know this is the first anniversary of x and we we always get mcdonald's on this day and you're sort of like oh my god really but like that's <laughs> get a, get a room you too. there's even there's a very famous folklore article written called the banana cannon that's about it's like this philosophical speculation on can people share folklore with their dogs because it's this guy <laughs> who has a game called banana cannon <laughs> that he plays with his dog and it's like hmm Folklorists would classify games often as a form of folklore. Like, hmm. can you share folklore with the dog? I don't know. This article <laughs> says yes. That's out there. That's a little bit of a banana cannon. I'm going to use that. Pushing the boundaries of folklore. I'm going to totally use that in my language tomorrow and just see who catches on. I, I'm sure somebody will once or twice. So <laughs> here's a question. When you talk about our society where we're at, not specifically, I guess, us, the world and as whole, I mean, obviously it's changed, you know, aside from COVID and all that, but you know, you talk about digital and that's one of your studies. So we are, we're a very digital 
enhance culture. You know, we're, we're sitting here on a screen talking one another. We're phones. We have this. We have that. How how do you think or how do you perceive that changing the future of folklore? Do you think it ever will revert back to what a traditional idea would be? Or do you think we're just on this train of just tech and we won't be able to get away from it? And that might diminish or drown out stories and myths. And what's that look like? That is such an awesome question because like everyone stressed out about this in the nineties. Um, and yes, we are on that train. I mean, barring the zombie apocalypse, which is probably coming. Oh, it's coming. They're in Oregon now. So they're coming. Yeah. Exactly. yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. We're, we're on that train, but um, barring that, yes, we are going to keep going with tech, but the coolest thing is so folklorists really got stressed in the eighties and the nineties about this saying the thing that makes folklore folklore, that dynamism, that, no one right version, that variation, that, that human element, that's going to go away. We're going to become a copy and paste culture, right? Like we're just going to, we're going to get a story and I'm not going to change it or revise it or make it my own or evolve it. I'm just going to forward it and mm-hmm. it's going to be identical and everything's going to be homogenized. Mm-hmm. And what we know now is that that was wrong <laughs> and that what human beings do with any communicative medium they are given is they share folklore in it. And that is the coolest thing. Now they share it differently. Mm -hmm. It is, it goes farther and it moves faster and it is more easily debunked and it is more quickly evolved. So that things like by the time anyone was ready to say anything about Slender Man, he'd moved on, you know, like Slender Man was like this monstrous character with many traditional precursors. The Pied Piper was a precursor of slender man right like hmm. we have all these sort of terrifying ideas and by the time the media decided to make a horror movie out of him he had already become sort of this like fan fiction fan art anti-bullying ally online which huh. is bizarre you know you're yeah. sort of going like really is that what happened yeah that's what happened hmm. um, and it's so so the 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 technology the amplification the speed of dissemination that we have it is changing things but the need of human beings to have metaphorical and symbolic means to communicate their ideas and that they will make those means dynamic and changeable absolutely sticks around like and we, and we have real case studies that show this there's a lot of good folkloric content in the world that could just be copied and pasted and and transmitted identically and it's not for whatever reason, people still are engaged in that idea of the ecotype, right? So that there's an urban legend that's told in Oakland, California, by the time it makes it to Utah, it's going to be told about Ogden, Utah. (laughs) And it's just, it's going to move across the country that same way. And because nobody cares about a story that happened five States away, we care Mm -hmm. about the stories that happened in our state. So they just get updated and no, we don't know who does it. And no, we can't trace it back. And even if we could, that's not why it's meaningful. It's not important. It's yeah. speaking to us. It's resonating on some level that is important to us. Wow. Crazy. Mm. I was just uh, reminded of this folklore and I always just called it a ghost story of mm. my neighborhood when I was thinking micro instead of macro. Yeah. And there was, we had this water tower. It was like this red and white water tower and there was a train track right by it. And Josh, you might've heard this. We grew up very close to each other. Um, and some kid like got hit by a train there and he would always whack his hammer on the train track. 
And if you were there, and I, I mean, I haven't heard this in probably 25 years, but like, I haven't heard it in longer than that. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) But like he would hit his hammer. And if you're like by the train tracks and by the water tower at that point in time, I think you would get haunted or something. I I kind of forgot. Yeah. He'd like follow you home or something. Yeah. He would follow you home and like your life would be over and everything. You know, I avoided that water tower. Like my whole, my whole childhood, I never went by there. I'm like, eh, fuck that place. I remember being afraid to drive by that at night when I was like 16. Nice. That's yeah. so funny. It's really the age that we start legend tripping where you start being like to your friends, you're all bored one night and you're like, guys, let's go to that train track by the water tower and see if we can hear the hammer. Like, like that bound. This is actually for a long time. The process that folklorists call legend tripping was actually called adolescent legend tripping because it was <laughs> so specific to this. Like, I just got a car. I can't go far away, but I uh, can. Right. Right. Parents. You know, like mm-hmm. so we're going to go to this, place where we're going to ask questions and test possibilities and push boundaries and maybe trespass and maybe also drink some beer and we're going to do like gently bad things and <laughs> gently test bad out thing. adulthood and somehow like legends and hauntings and stuff are a huge part of that for people i thought you were going to tell the story of gravity hill the pop- i was i was yeah, I was literally just about to ask you if you've ever yeah, heard yeah. of Gravity Hill, which, yes. yeah. yeah, There are Gravity Hills all over the United States, which okay. is awesome. And they are like a like an optical illusion sort of phenomenon where your car appears to roll uphill when you put it in neutral. But uh-huh. the story is always, I don't, I think this is true in Utah as well, where you put baby powder on the back bumper of the car and then you'll see the handprints. Yes, uh, I heard children <laughs> pushed you out of harm's way. When yeah, my yeah. wife and I moved to Utah a few years ago, that's the first freaking thing we did was we went to because we read about I it. I love it. You know, and I did, you know, the typical thing, you know, Bloody Mary will appear, which freaked me out because, you know, and I'm sure you know the story behind it, but my mom swore up and down that somewhere in our lineage, we were related to Queen Anne Boleyn, who was original Bloody Mary. And so when I did it, I, I freaked the fuck out. I was like, you know, I can't do this. I, I get, if my great, great aunt of whatever comes through that mirror, I'm going to shit my pants. It's all going to be over with. So it was a done deal. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just so funny. I mean, and they take you back to, you know, and every town has the same thing and, and every, yeah, yep. that, that's just absolutely. Well, and there's a group I belong to called Ochre Paranormal Investigators. Uh, guys found it like 25 years ago. We go out and we do folklore. And one of the first things we did was the Salt Lake Cemetery. Where we nice. talk about uh, the number of the beast, tombstone, and these Emo's things. Grave. Emo's grave, yeah, exactly. Emo's grave is amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's so correct. And I did the whole thing, circle around it three times. Look, although they got it all boarded up now, so you can't did look you in see there. It? Did you see the light? Mm. No, no. Bad. I'm, I'm kind of. I try to stay. Yeah, I probably did. I was walking backwards. <laughs> Maybe I was undoing everything for some weird reason. I don't yeah. know. Anyway. Um, it doesn't always have to work out perfectly to still come out with a good story. So, yep, you know, we have a, a cemetery statue in Logan, the weeping woman who it's a mm. traditional La Llorona story. You know, if you, if you visit her on a full moon or at midnight and you say weep woman, weep, she's surrounded by the graves of her dead children and she'll cry either tears or tears of blood, depending on how dramatic your storyteller is. Um, I've never seen her cry in person, but I have seen evidence of past crying on her face like the marks on the stone and everything and of course a skeptic would be like yeah that's the sprinklers you know (laughs) that's right like their tear tracks like the 
sculpture then I guess mm. is carved in such a way that the water pools in her eyes and runs down her cheeks. Like, okay, sure. Interesting. I, I think it's a better story that she cries. <laughs> yeah. She's sometimes skeptics are just so ugh, like, okay, yeah, I get, you gotta be uh, like, we need skeptics and yep. you know, it's, it's not bad to have a skeptical mind, but like, man, just have some fun. Sometimes I'm button that right. top collar and like, yeah. God, you're such yep. a, like take the stick out of yep. your ass and just like, enjoy yourselves <laughs> a little bit. Right. Like let's just allow for the possibility that things are cooler than you think they are. Yep. Yeah. yeah. You it's like, no, be that's a, yeah. rain. It's like, cool fuck Thanks, you man, man. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah awesome a lot of fun who brought chad yeah, exactly chad <laughs> yeah. you're not coming next time yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the curious skeptics are the ones we need the ones that are willing to look at that other border a little bit and do that so how long have you been in utah can i ask yes and that is a tricky question because Uh-oh. i did my master's degree here so oh. I am a graduate of the program that I'm now in charge of. Um, so I first got here in, I'm dating myself, 1999 um, to do to start grad school. And then I went to Newfoundland where I did my PhD. And then I moved back here um, and worked here for a while. And then I moved away again. And then I moved back here in 2011. <laughs> well, so I've lived here like on and off for 21 years. That's great. Well, the reason I ask is, do you find Utah to be unique when it comes to folklore as far as regional and every yes. state differs. That was well, fast. I'm sure. Yeah, it was really quick. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, one of my favorite stories that we have here is our own local take on Bigfoot, that he is Cain, the biblical Cain, mm. um, wandering the planet, um, you mm. know, as punishment. I think that is a, I have not heard that. It may be a story that's told elsewhere, but I have yet to encounter the wow. Bigfoot as Cain story anywhere else. But honestly, one of my all-time favorite local legends is the the legend cycle of the three Nephites. Um, just the, you know, wandering bearded old men who assist people often who are having car trouble on the roadside. Um, it's really, there's so many local variations. And that's a legend that exists everywhere, but it's not a three Nephite legend. We call it the vanishing hitchhiker. Mm-hmm. And it's, as far back as Scandinavia in the 1500s, wow. we have a version of the Vanishing Hitchhiker story. So it's one of those things where when my students are just like, no, but that happened to my grandpa. I'm sort of like, hey, I'm not here to say it didn't happen to your grandpa. It just also happened to a lot of other people in a lot of other places. Yeah, that's um, actually one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes. <gasps> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I know. The Twilight Zone pop culture does its best. It, in my totally biased opinion, when it really <laughs> taps in to what works about folklore. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh man. Uh, you know what? I looking at the time we're keeping you number one. This is amazing. I mean, I, I, you, you know, it's just I, love, whole, I mean, clearly I would keep talking about, it. Yeah. we'll have I, to do this again. <laughs> we'll talk more about folklore. I just like, uh, I, that everything is folklore. Yeah, yeah. I know. You right. know, I never really like put that together. I just thought folklore was Brothers Grimm yep. and it's what you tell your kids so they'll mm-hmm. go to bed and mm-hmm. not cry or whatever, or maybe Which cry, but do it in their is. bedroom. You know, it yeah. is that. And then it's just all this other stuff. As and well. then it's just everything else. That's crazy. That's crazy. It has, it's fantastic. I, do you have anything on your side, Dr. Lynn, to promote or talk about or anything that we can help you with? Man, you know, I mean, certainly USU Spokler program, if this is stuff anyone's interested in, send me an email, Google USU Folklore, you'll find us. We offer a master's degree. We offer an undergraduate mm. minor. We offer cool 
hangouts. We have, I, I, this is the thing most people don't know. Utah State University has the second largest folklore collection in the country after the wow. Library of Congress. Really? Uh, and in fact, the Library of Congress folklorists who run the American Folklife Center um, come and hang out with us like all the time. Like it's where it's, it's weird. You know, Logan, Utah is this tiny town no one's ever heard of. And yet we're like this awesome hub of folklore studies. So, I, I never um, I'm on, I'm on Twitter, Lynn S. McNeil on Twitter. I tweet about folklore, you know, folklorists on the whole are trying to like let people in the world know like one, there's folklore. It's a thing. <laughs> um, and two, like you can ask us about it. A lot of people who they don't know they need a folklorist. They end up going to a historian or an anthropologist or something like that. And we're like, no, talk to us. Yeah. <laughs> talk to the folklorists. Um, <laughs> and there's actually a really cool, and it has, it's big. It's been globally trending, not Taylor Swift's new album, Folklore, <laughs> which is also a big deal. Touche. But um, Folklore Thursday is both a hashtag and a really great blog that's run out of England. That's a great blend of sort of academic folklore stuff and then just really cool, like traditional fairy lore and, and ghost lore and, and cryptid lore and stuff like that. Um, so if you're interested in anything folklore related, follow the Folklore Thursday hashtag. And it's just, you kind of can't go wrong. You'll find a whole slew of awesome. That's amazing. Content. That's amazing. Um, when you find time after this, email me some of these little things. We'll put it in the show notes. We'll make sure that we have that. And if somebody wanted to get into folklore, say not necessarily as a professional, you know, taking the course, but they really are just enthused. They want to add that. I'm talking about me, by the way. They want to add that to their <laughs> to their repertoire and kind of work that in. What's the best way to do that? What do you find for outlets? This is going to sound horribly self-promoting, but I'm going to say read my book, Folklore Rules. It's really short. It's under 100 pages, but it is, I mean, I I have three degrees in folklore. I'm just sort of like, like I am, I love folklore. That's my job is to promote it. So it's a good starting point. It's a quick and easy book. It's written. So I actually had to get the university press that published it to okay the word super fun. Because I used it enough times that they were like, I guess this is a word now. And I was like, yeah, obviously. <laughs> um, so I'd recommend reading it. It has suggestions for other stuff. Um, Barry Tolkien's Dynamics of Folklore is another great book. Um, the AFS, the American Folklore Society, is um, a great professional organization to start with. But smaller but better is the International Society for Contemporary Legend Research, which is where all of us who study ghosts and cryptids and Urban oh, no. Legends hang out. It meets every other year in North America and Europe. Um, and everyone always goes legend tripping. So wherever the meeting's held, we go to Gravity Hill. We oh, go to the cool. haunted house. We do whatever. And it's all academics, but it's like really cool academics. I was so, about to say, yeah. you've got to, I'm sure you're probably the coolest teacher on campus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Cl- close. I mean, I'll be humble. But, I, um, I, I don't know many other uh, professors up there, but uh, I, I can probably guarantee. <laughs> um, no, it's, I mean, folklore classes are, are fun. That, that's yeah. sort of undeniable. That is, and it's, and surprisingly useful, you know, as far as undergraduate majors go, um, business majors find urban legends that pertain to marketing to be relevant. You know, history majors find like, the non-truthful but culturally impactful narratives of different cultures to be useful. There's something for everyone, and I I know I'm horribly biased, but it's such a useful thing to study and care about and know about. And if nothing else, it tells you that all that stuff that other people say, you know, is too lowbrow or you shouldn't be interested in this. You're like, actually... I should. So, it's useful it's amazing. Part. You bring the excitement into it. It's cool. And I feel like we just 
touched the tip of the iceberg with this whole thing. Um, I can't wait. Hopefully you'll have, you'll be on again. You know, we can get a little bit more in detail. Oh, it's fantastic. You know, I mean, I, I'm just, um, yeah, it's amazing. I thank you for your time. As far as the listeners go, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. If you want to remain on the line real quickly, we just want to say thank you when we're done. Um, and for those of your interest in folklore, of course, we'll have all everything in the show notes. Um, if you have any folklore of your own family, like Dr. Lynn had stated, maybe a microcosm thing of a family story that kicked around by all means, tell us that you can call us at 801-252-6945. And you can actually email us at strangeuncles at gmail.com. Follow us on all social networks. And, uh, yeah, it's been great having you on amazing time. You much made up for an interview from last week. Um, and fantastic. So I don't know, John, Josh, you got anything? Uh, from one true Aggie to another, we definitely want to have you back on. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Just thanks for being on. And uh, yeah, that was awesome. Fantastic. All right, everybody. Thank you, listeners. Close gates. You've been listening to a fourth hand production.